following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. It's exciting to worship together. It's exciting to be coming together as God's holy temple. Uh, Living stones being built together uh, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to Him. And that's what we are doing this morning. Uh, This morning we're looking in John chapter 9. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn there, let me begin by just reading the beginning. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I want to read the first few verses to introduce uh, the story this morning. In uh, John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed, and came back seeing. All right, to get us uh, thinking about this story, to kind of put it in context, I want to talk for just a minute about blindness. And I hope we have a PowerPoint, because this is really not going to work if I don't have my picture. It's coming. Okay, I want to talk and, and help us think a little bit about blindness. And uh, to start with, I would like you to just close your eyes for a minute and try to imagine being blind. Okay, so you just got to close your eyes because, of course, you can't see if you're blind. So close your eyes. I want you to imagine blindness. Now, to do this, I want you to try to erase from all conscious perception anything that represents any kind of image or picture or color or shape or anything visual. I want you to imagine, basically, what it's like to not be able to imagine. All right? Now, if you get to the place where there's no picture shapes, colors, images, visions in your, in your head for more than like 15 seconds, raise your hand. Anybody? <laughs> okay. Uh, it can't be done. Well, maybe you could do it. I tried. I couldn't do it. You can open your eyes. It's virtually impossible to imagine being blind because so much of what we are is images, Right? Uh, it's, it's actually, it's as hard for us to imagine blindness as it is for a blind person to imagine sight. All right? Just to give you an, an idea of what it would mean to be born blind. So much of our world and our ideas and our shapes about our existence and our own being are formed by pictures. And uh, you can't really imagine what it's like to be blind. It's interesting, there's a great painting, if you could bring it to the next slide, called The Blind Girl which pictures what it is to be blind, that something only we with sight could appreciate. A blind person couldn't really see this. But uh, what I'd like for you to do is take just a moment and reflect on this picture. It's called the blind girl, the, 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 the older girl with the shawl 
is the one who's blind. And I know some of you, especially in the back, may have a hard time actually seeing some of the details of this picture. But I like to just for a moment, and uh, with the person sitting next to you, talk about what you see in this picture. That it's kind of a picture of what it means to be blind. All right, so look at the picture. It's a girl, another little girl sitting on her lap. Uh, just kind of take in the whole thing. And take just a moment. Talk with the person next to you, a couple of people. What you see in that picture that is a picture of blindness. All right? I'll give you one minute. It would be interesting if we had time to hear what everybody's observations are. I'll summarize what some of them may have been. Um, you know, it's a, power, it's, a, it's a very powerful picture of what blindness is. And uh, I was just struck by many things in the picture. And it's interesting that this girl who's blind, uh, her whole world, she's wearing this shawl. And it's as if her whole world is basically within the grasp of that shawl. What she can feel and sense directly. Uh, Even the sunlight that's shining on her face is something she only feels on her skin, not as something outside. Uh, She's holding the girl's hand. The little girl is close up against her and inside the shawl. So that everything in her world and her universe is experienced only by what she can touch. But you look around her and here's this whole amazing world that she is just oblivious to. I can't really see it very well, but on her shawl there's a butterfly. And, uh, you know, here's this beautiful little butterfly that's touching her, but it's outside the shawl. It's kind of outside of her, her world of experience. And... Um, it's a powerful, powerful picture as you reflect on it. All the colors, the lights, the shadows of the trees are all things that are outside of her, her world. And ultimately, as you, as you reflect on it, you realize that she can't know much of what her world is about because she doesn't have the tool required for that knowledge, which is sight. Uh, she can't know uh, where she is in relationship to the little village behind her, which may be the village that she walked from. She can't know the birds that are flying around her or the cattle off in the distance. But the most striking of all, to me, and I think it's just interesting that the artist painted this with two, like beautiful double rainbow. And I thought, you know, how powerful. She can't know what a rainbow is. In theory, you know, you could catch the bird, uh, which would be kind of a scary thing, and she could touch the bird. Maybe she could kind of get her hands on some of those things. Uh, she's grasping by her side, you may not be able to see this, but she's grasping a flower. You know, she can know those things through touch, but even the flower that she's grasping, she can't really know what it is. But when it comes to the rainbow, it kind of takes it to a whole other realm of experience. She can't possibly know. I want you to imagine if you were to try to explain to this girl what a rainbow is. Okay? Okay, you're going to explain this beautiful rainbow. She goes, oh, what's a rainbow? And you want to tell her what a rainbow is. How would you do that? Well, you might be resourceful and go to a dictionary, and you might read a definition that would go something like this. A rainbow, you would tell her, is an arc of light separated into bands of color that appears when the sun's rays are reflected and refracted by drops of mist or rain. The colors of the rainbow are conventionally said to be red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Now, of course, that all makes some sense to us. Maybe you kind of missed it the first time, but if I read it to you three or four times, you'd catch on. Okay? But imagine how much of that could make no sense to a blind person, a person born blind. 
hey, words like light. Well, what is light? Well, you know, Professor Bill Clark back there could explain for us light, and I can promise none of us would know what he's talking about, right? For sure a blind person wouldn't, because it's something you can only know by experience. Uh, you know, it talks about refractions and reflections and sun's rays, right? And then I love best of all, really the best way to describe a rainbow is that it's the prism broken down into these colors. Well, a blind person can't know these colors. So maybe they would say, well, what is color? So I don't get it. What is color? So you try to explain, you go to the dictionary again, and you say, it's the property of objects that depends on the light they reflect and is perceived as red, blue, green, and other shades. Okay, great. So color is something about red, blue, green. So you go to the dictionary again, you go, okay, what is green? Well, green is the color of the spectrum between yellow and blue. Okay, that helps. Like the color of grass. Oh, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Green is grass. Okay, they can kind of get their hands on that. Between blue and yellow, what's yellow and blue? Well, blue is having or resembling the color of the sky on a cloudless day. Okay, if you're blind, that just isn't going to explain a whole lot. Okay, or yellow, which is having or being near the color of butter or ripe lemons. Okay, so now this person's got this image of this ark made of lemons, butter, and grass, right? And that's a rainbow. It's uh, kind of a tossed salad, right, in the sky. You get the difficulty of knowing, seeing the problem of them knowing. And, uh, you know, we, as you reflect on this, you become aware of the fact that really we know a great deal about our world, ourselves, and the universe because we can see. Now, of course, a blind person uh, develops their own senses of, of understanding their world based on the senses that they have. Uh, and in the picture, she has, you know, touch is a very strong one, feel. She knows the heat of the sun. She knows the cool of the breeze on her face. Uh, and a person born blind would experience the world to them in a very normal way. They wouldn't have the sense that they're missing out on anything, and they would have a knowledge of the world based on their experience of it, through their touch, through their feel. And they may not understand rainbows, but they would understand a lot about the world as they experience it. And so for them, they wouldn't know really what blindness is. And you would have a very difficult ex time explaining to them how much of the world they don't know. And they would have a sense that they know the world just like you do. And in fact, you could argue, you could say to them, well, you don't know what a rainbow is. And they could memorize the definition and recite it back to you. Oh, yes, rainbow is a lark of, uh, an arc of light separated by refraction of, uh, you know, on the, on the mist and the dew into its various colors. I know what a rainbow is. But you say, yeah, but you really don't. But they would say, well, I do. And I've experienced these things, and I know the world just like you know the world. And to them, there is a seeing, there is an understanding that they possess. So that, really, it's a matter of faith for them to believe even that they're blind. And, uh, and that's kind of the backdrop and the setting of the story. The reality is it's hard to believe what you cannot see and if you're blind and cannot see it, it's hard to believe it, right? It's hard to believe it. And that really is kind of the backdrop of what the story is about. Jesus encounters a man born blind. A man who's experienced the whole world in its very limited sense, 
and knows the world in a very limited sense through hearing and touch and smell. And that's how he's known things. And he's never known what he has missed. And Jesus sees this man, and uh, he is a God who gives sight to the blind. And of course, this story really is about the blind man, but it's really about all of us as blind creatures. So let's look at the story. First of all, Jesus gives sight to this man, and uh, as they're walking along, they see him, the disciples see him, and the disciples raise an interesting theological question. All right? And they go, you know, obviously this man was born blind. Uh, apparently this man had a reputation. People knew his story and knew that he had been blind from birth. And the disciples go, whose fault is it? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Which is really an interesting question about a person born blind. You know, it's, imp- it's imp- implying that he could sin before he was born. All right? I think it's kind of a dumb question, but actually the Jews debated this. Right? And there's some, there's some interesting commentary in Jewish Talmud about uh, Jacob and Esau and how they were sinning, fighting even before they were born. Right? Uh, interesting theology there. And, uh, of course, the other option would be that, that it was uh, as a result of his mother's sin. Uh, of course, we, we all know and understand, and, of course, the Jews would have taught and believed, that in a general sense, all suffering and pain comes as a result of sin. Living in a fallen world, and if a person has blindness or deafness, if there's any kind of tragedy, calamity, difficulty, suffering, hardship, we would say, why did that happen? Well, you know, the short and simple answer is, well, it happened because of sin. Okay? That, that answer doesn't sell very well these days, but that's what we would say, okay? because, well, it's true. Um, and the Jews extracted that general principle that suffering and sin in the world are suffering and hardship were an effect of sin in the world, and they applied it specifically and directly to individual cases, which we also know sometimes are true. Uh, Sometimes, in in direct and specific ways, people suffer because of the sins either of themselves or of other people. For example, you know, one of the kids at our children's home is Matthew. We talk a lot about Matthew. He has cerebral palsy, terrible disease, terrible infliction. And he can't eat, he can't swallow... He's uh, in the hospital all the time. He can't sit up. He can't walk. He can't do any of the things that a normal child would do. Uh, Was that his fault or the fault of his mother? Well, we know it was the fault of his mother. Uh, She tried to uh, abort the baby at three months by drinking large amounts of alcohol and, uh, you know, caused brain damage to this child. Uh, We know that children are born into the world with HIV AIDS because of the sins of their parents. We know that uh, every day people drink alcohol and cause serious harm or death to themselves or others, right? So we know that there is this connection. And then on top of that, to to impress and to really instill fear into our children, we kind of exaggerate this connection, right? We tell stories and legends and fables to illustrate this point. Like one of my favorite ones is the story about the pirates, the greedy pirates, who came along this great treasure chest of gold and the, the greedy pirates took all the gold and they stuffed their pockets and their, their pants and their trousers and every spare empty space they could with the gold and they sailed away and their ships sunk and because their pockets and everything was so full of gold the pirate sunk to his death because of greed. And we kind of apply this logic universally. We get the idea that, you know, some 
sins, some, some suffering is a consequence of sin, uh, and then we apply it universally, that really all suffering is a consequence of sin. And the logic goes something like this. Uh, greedy pirates uh, die because they're greedy, uh, and they drown in the sea when their ship sinks. You know, Bob over there, his, his boat sunk and he drowned. Therefore, Bob is a greedy pirate, Right? Now, that's very bad logic. And if you study logic, you know that that's bad logic and there's some flaws in that logic. But we kind of apply that reasoning. And we do it to scare children, right? Because we don't want them being greedy. So we want them to know that if you're greedy, you're going to drown. Some you're going to be out in the pool and the greed's just going to sink you to the bottom, right? And that's how we form character. It's all about character development. You, you frighten children that bad things will happen if you do, you know, wrong things. And then they're, they're, they're good children, right? And so we grew up with this theology that's a bit flawed. And it's this theology that says, if bad things happen, you deserved it, right? So in, in short, the end of this story is simply this, that all Jew, you know, Jewish people and Christian people believe in karma just like Buddhists. We're all on the same page here. Or we all just basically believe in karma. In karma. That uh, you know, bad things happen because you deserved it, right? Well, the disciples take this... Uh, this very Jewish form of thinking, and they, they, they kind of throw this out to Jesus. Well, you know, obviously somebody sinned. He's blind. Was it his mom? Or, you know, was it something he was doing, you know, watching bad movies in the womb or something? You know? Well, what was it? Well, Jesus says neither. And he, he doesn't go down that line of reasoning. He says it's not about, it doesn't work that way. It is not about uh, somebody's sin. The reality and the truth is, and Jesus doesn't develop it further than that, he just says it's not. It's not about who sinned. It's not, this disease was not a, the direct result of specific sin. Um, Paul and other places in the New Testament developed this more. And uh, the truth is, if we all got what we deserved, we would all be significantly maimed or dead. All right? We don't get what we deserve. And uh, in general, there's sin, but it's not direct and always specific, all right? It's general. And so Jesus just doesn't go there. He doesn't walk down that path. Uh, and he really raises the problem to a new level. And he says, this has happened in order that the glory of God may be manifest in this man. Now that doesn't mean, and some people could read it this way, well, that God made this guy blind and God caused this to happen in this man because he wanted to heal him and show his power. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is really saying is this. All suffering, all evil, whether it's the result of sin or not, is an opportunity for God to show his power and greatness. In other words, we don't judge this by the beginning of the story, but by the end. All right? We don't look at people's suffering and hardship and, and, and uh, the, 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 the things that they deal with and judge by its cause whether it's a good or bad thing, which is what we tend to do. And that's what this question is all about. Well, the cause of this uh, implicates somebody as guilty, as a sinner. And Jesus says, that's not the issue. The issue is not where it came from. It all came from sin. That's not the point. The point is, what is God's end to it? What does God want to do with this in anybody's life who suffers? Well, God's ultimate end and goal is to bring glory to himself by redemption, by bringing light. And then Jesus kind of says some weird things. He talks about um, 
working and, and doing this work, he says, um, he says, we must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent me. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, the first 500 times I read that, I was very confused. And probably I'm still a little bit. Uh, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, really he's saying, God sent Jesus into the world as he sends us into the world to be agents of redemption in the brokenness and sin in people's lives. Uh, the end of the story is not the curse that's come upon us because of sin. The end of the story is how God can be glorified in all of our brokenness through redemption. And Jesus says we must work quickly at the task that God has assigned to us. Well, what is the task that God has assigned to us? As those sent into the world by the Father, what are we to be about? Well, Jesus was about redemption. He was about taking the brokenness of sin and suffering and bringing glory to God through it by restoring and redeeming. It's interesting, in this miracle, actually, Jesus goes beyond restoration because he's not restoring sight that was lost. This guy never saw. Jesus actually does the miracle of giving something he never had, of giving him absolutely new vision that he never before possessed. And in that, God was glorified. But not only in his physical eyes, but as we'll see, uh, in his spiritual soul, God uses this as a means of redemption in his life. And one thing we need to develop is a theology of suffering where God can be redemptive and where we see that all difficult and hardship in our life can be an opportunity for God to be glorified by bringing us to himself. Uh, God is glorified in this man's life ultimately not because he becomes a man who sees, though he was once blind, but because he's a man who in the end sees Jesus and has spiritual sight in the midst of a world full of blindness and darkness. And in that, God is ultimately glorified. And the truth is that if you are dealing with difficulties in your life, uh, hardships, suffering, things that you don't like, it's easy to get hung up on the cause of it. You know, am I doing something wrong? Is somebody else doing something wrong? You know, I know somebody's doing something wrong or this wouldn't have happened to me. Don't focus on that. Jesus says, take your eyes off that and focus on the other end. What's the end of the story? How can this difficulty in my life be an opportunity for God to bring glory by bringing me to a place of greater redemption, a place of greater knowledge of Him and insight into His purpose and plan in my life? And so Jesus says we've got to work while it's still light because when the night comes, it's over. In other words, uh, this process, this opportunity for light and redemption doesn't go on forever. There comes a day when it's the last day. Uh, while it's light, you can work. When darkness comes, in other words, when death comes, it's over. There is, a, there is a point at which there are no more opportunities for redemption. So we've got to work while it's light. We've got to work while people are alive. We've got to take opportunity, uh, take advantage of the opportunities when they arise to be agents of redemption in people's lives. So then Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I, I came to bring light to darkness. Uh, and then he, uh, he does some weird stuff. Uh, and this is a very unique miracle of healing. Uh, first of all, Jesus begins this miracle by spitting, okay, which you know is gross uh, and kind of weird. And he spits on the ground, and then he takes his spit and he mixes it up into a little pool of mud, which is also gross. 
And then he takes this little spittle pool of like mud and he smears it on his finger and he takes and he rubs it on this guy's eyes. Okay, this is triple gross. All right? I don't want to be this guy. All right? This is just disgusting. And the guy's blind, but he's not deaf. You know, he can hear this, what's going on. And uh, all of a sudden, there's like this wet, gooey, slimy mud on his eyes. He's going, ooh. You know, this is not really, ooh, what are you doing? Okay? Why did Jesus do this? You know, that's a good question to ask him when you get to heaven. Because nobody really knows. All right? There's some really weird and interesting theories in all the commentaries that are just really kind of interesting and weird. Um, it's true that in, in, in ancient times, they attributed sometimes magic to bodily fluids or powers to bodily fluids. Uh, and some magicians would use spit as a part of their magic. The Jews, however, uh, really looked down on that because they were against magic, they were against that kind of stuff. Why Jesus did this? Why, what was the thing is with the mud? Why he didn't just say, be healed, I, you know? I don't, I don't completely know, and, and, and nobody's come up with a really answer that I would be that made sense to me. Uh, I don't really know why, but I, I would say this. Um, given that this guy was blind, given that this guy's experience of, those, of the world was very, very touch-oriented, uh, it may be that Jesus wanted this guy to experience this miracle uh, kind of through touch, through the senses. Uh, that, that there's something about this process that is very experience-centered. It wasn't just a, uh, an abstract spoken word. Uh, in fact, Jesus doesn't speak the word of healing. He doesn't say, go wash so that you can see. He just does this. You know, all of a sudden, this guy's getting this mud pack on his eye. He's like, whoa, what, what was that? And Jesus says, okay, go wash. He doesn't say, go wash so you'll be healed. He doesn't go say, go wash so you can see. He just says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. That's all he says. It certainly took some faith for this guy to respond to this. Although, once the mud's on your eye, washing probably sounded pretty good, you know. It may not have been much of a faith thing as much of just, uh, okay, yeah, I'll go wash, right? Um, another thing that this did, which may play later into the story, is that it removes the guy from Jesus' presence. The guy goes away, and when he sees, Jesus is nowhere around. And so this guy's got to figure all this out, uh, kind of on his own path, so to speak. That's what he does. Jesus does. He says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So the guy goes to the pool. And John is very clear, and he interprets for us the meaning of the Hebrew word Shalom. Uh, it's a Hebrew word transliterated into Greek that simply means scent. Uh, that's not just random detail. There's a specific reason for it. And uh, this pool was just outside the, sheep, uh, the water gate in Jerusalem. Uh, it's the pool. We talked about the water pouring or water drying ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles. They went to that very same pool. Uh, what does that mean? Go to the scent pool and wash. Well, throughout John, over and over and over again, Jesus has described himself as the one scent. He says, if you know who sent me, if you know that the Father sent me, I have been sent by the Father to do his work. Right? Over and over again, Jesus has been describing himself as the one sent from God. And I think Jesus here is, is creating this beautiful object lesson of how we, we receive spiritual sight, how we receive this redemptive work 
that renews us and makes us people from, from people broken in sin and blindness to people in, restored to sight and vision. And it is by going to this fountain of living water and washing ourselves in the sent one. Finding our life and our soul and our whole being washed in the impurity and the filth of the dirt and the mud and the spit and uh, the, the, the effects of sin on us, washed and cleansed by the sent one, this living water. So, so he does this, and it says he comes out seeing. Uh, immediately, his eyes are, are given sight, and he becomes one who sees. Uh, it really is an incredible miracle. Uh, for those of us in the modern age who have a scientific mind, We'll look at this miracle, as some do, as impossible. And some would say, you know, it's one thing to restore the optic nerve, but for a person who's lived their whole life without sight, uh, having the lights turned on would create all kinds of other problems. You'd be very disoriented. You would have all this input of information you wouldn't know what it was. You couldn't make sense out of. Um, but ultimately, you could argue that, you know, if this guy had really been healed and had really been blind, that the only way he could function is and function in the world would be to close his eyes and operate with his eyes closed, right? And that's true. If you were to take a person, in fact, they've done this with uh, people who've been blind. They've restored their, their uh, sight through surgery, and it's been very difficult for them. It's taken months of therapy for them to learn how to deal in a sighted world. Uh, and so some would say, this can't be true. But I would say this. Uh, it just shows how great the miracle is. Because God, Jesus didn't just give him sight, but he gave him all that his brain and mind needed to use it. Now, if Jesus can fix the optic nerves, he can rewire the brain, okay? It's not that hard. If you can do one, you can do the other. And the point is, Jesus was smart enough to do both because he created us. He knew what it would take for this man to function with this gift of sight, to use this knowledge and this understanding that he had been given. So when Jesus does the miracle, he doesn't do it partway. He does it completely. He does it fully so that this man not only sees, but is able to use his gift of sight. Well, this obviously is not just a picture about healing. It's a, it's a story about spiritual blindness. And uh, there are some truths and principles about our own life we can take from this. First of all, we are spiritually blind. And when we get to the end of the story... Uh, Jesus makes that very clear. We are spiritually blind. And because of that, there is a whole reality that we cannot know. Okay, that's the first principle. Blind people cannot understand or know the world the way sighted people do. We are spiritually blind. We cannot understand spiritual realities. All right? Now, we try. And we try using some of our other senses. And we're going to talk just a minute about what those senses are. Um... But what we find is that those other senses give us a description of spiritual realities, not a true knowledge. And there's a difference. A blind person can describe a rainbow. We can talk about what a ra rainbow is to a blind person, but that's not the same as knowing it by experience. Only someone who can see can really know what a rainbow is. Well, the same thing is true for us in the spiritual realm. We can know by description certain things about God, but it's never the same as knowing him because we've seen him with spiritual eyes that have sight. Um, another principle is that just as a blind person really 
has to accept by faith that they're blind. In the same way, it's really hard for us to believe we're blind. The reality is that human nature would, would tell us, you're not blind. Okay? That other reality just doesn't exist. If it existed, you could see it. And since you can't see it, then it must not be real. Uh, we don't want to accept the fact that we can't see it because we're blind. Right? But that's something we have to come to grips with. Fourth thing is that when we, uh, when we can't see, we do trust our other senses. Like the blind girl in that picture. You know, she was trusting touch and feel and she has a little accordion. She can hear things. Right? We turn to our other senses. So what are these other senses that we turn to to try to understand God? What's interesting, in this story as it unfolds, this guy who was blind begins to gradually get more and more sight. And in the process, you see around him all these people who outwardly can see, but inwardly are spiritually blind. And they are people who are relying on these other senses to grasp God in reality. So let's look real briefly at what they are. What are these senses? The first, uh, and this story is actually quite humorous. If we had time to really develop the humor here, we would. But uh, it says his neighbors and the others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, so the guy comes back. He comes back into town. He goes to his little spot where he used to beg. And all the people who know him, his neighbors and friends, see him. And they have this very interesting conversation. Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg, the blind man? Some said. Some said he was. And others said, no, he just looks like him. Okay? So it's like, um, you know, in their, wor- in their world, in their reality, all of a sudden this guy comes seeing and they can't grasp that. They can't comprehend that. And they're going, no, it couldn't be him. It's got to be somebody different. And they're confused about the whole thing. So finally the guy's jumping up and down going, no, it's me. It's me. Really, it's me. And finally they believe him. He tells them the story about Jesus putting the mud on his eyes, going and washing. And they go, wow, that's, that's crazy. We think, that the, we think the Pharisees need to make a ruling on this, right? Because we don't get this. So they go find some local, and this isn't at the temple level. This is at kind of a local level. They go to a synagogue. And they go to the church leaders, you know, and they go, you know, we, we just have something really strange here. We want you to explain to us. So they go, they present it to the Pharisees, and uh, they, the Pharisees ask this man, this man Jesus, well, they ask him what happened. Verse 13, they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the men all about it. So he told them, he put mud on my eyes so I could see, and I washed. And some of the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, cannot, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. But others said, How could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division among them. Okay, it's very clear that these, these people have no spiritual vision. Right? They cannot see the truth of who Jesus is. And that's been a theme ongoing through the Gospel of John, but especially in chapters 7 and 8. This whole thing that they are blind. They can't hear. They can't understand. So, because they don't have spiritual sight, they rely on the, the sense of logic and reasoning. And they apply a logical formula to this problem. Guy comes in, he was blind, now he sees. Uh, they don't like Jesus, and he did, he did this to him, right? 
And uh, he, he did it on a Sabbath day. And he did it by breaking several Sabbath laws. He was working. Uh, healing was considered a work. The only healing miracle you could do on a Sabbath was to save somebody's life. He'd been blind since birth, so you know, one more day wasn't going to kill him. Right? That was their logic. Secondly, Jesus made medicine. You know, spit and mud. Uh, or he also could have broken the, the law of kneading, mixing, was breaking the law. Um, so he's breaking all these laws. He's healing, he's doing all this stuff. And they apply logic to this, this situation. And they, because they have no spiritual vision, they must understand the world by logical deduction. And their logic works something like this. Jesus is breaking the law, uh, which is sin. Uh, we already don't like him. So therefore, this miracle can't be a good thing. It must be a bad thing. Right? Another group looks at this problem and they look at it from a different angle. They know that, uh, they're, they're following the logic of the disciples, that blindness is a cause of sin, so therefore sight must be a result of not sin. Right? It's kind of logic in reverse. If sin caused it, then some kind of righteousness must have fixed it. Um, if sin causes bad things, more sin can't cause good things. Okay? We wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. right? And they know that. And so they apply these systems of logic. Um, the end result of that is they have a huge fight. Okay? So they are deeply divided. Okay? They can't agree. Uh, my observation is that many Christians, many people in the world, try to figure God out based on logic and reasoning. They apply this kind of thinking about how God must be, about why there's sin in the world and why there's suffering, and they try to solve those problems through logic and reasoning. And the result is 10,000 different groups and denominations and organizations who are divided, right? Because... It's like, and this is what it would be like, okay? It's like a group of people trying to figure out, a group of blind people trying to figure out rainbows, right? And they apply a logic and reasoning and arguing, and they come up with all different kinds of theories about rainbows, and each one convinced that their theory is right. But the reality is none of them are right fully because they're basing it on descriptions, not experience. Uh, the truth is, and I'm all for logic, I'm all for thinking, but if we rely on that faculty, apart from spiritual sight, we will always end up with faulty conclusions. Okay? Too much Christianity is based on great logic, but the best logic in the world is never a substitute for a personal encounter. And that's what, that's what we find here. This group of people who cannot figure Jesus out because they're trying to do it purely through reason, through logic, through brain power, instead of through a personal encounter with Jesus. Well, the next sense that they use, they kind of keep on arguing. The leaders are still refusing to figure this out. It's interesting, they, they go to this blind guy who was born in sin and who now they think are, are convinced got healed because of sin, and they ask him, what's your opinion? Okay. I don't know why they ask that. They don't, they don't like the guy. They don't believe in what happened. But they say, what do you think happened? Well, now this guy who, who didn't know Jesus, doesn't really know who this guy was, has not seen him since, 
has to start putting some things together in his own mind. Now he has one unique advantage over everybody else. And that is that he has just experienced one of the most incredible things a human being could ever experience. Imagine, and just imagine to have the whole universe open up in a moment before you. That before that your world was just this big and all of a sudden your, your universe is, is seemingly endless. And all of a sudden, there's light and life and fullness and color and stuff that you can't even describe. And uh, you don't know the theology of it all, but you know that something good has come into your life. And so they ask you, what do you think about this? Who is this Jesus guy? What do you think about Jesus? And you're thinking, I don't know. You know, At the very least, at the very least, he's got to be a prophet. I've heard of Elijah. I've heard of Elisha. We've heard of these prophets who could do great things like this. This, in my opinion, the blind guy says, was a great thing. Great people do great things. This guy must at the very least be a prophet. Well, they don't like that answer. So they say, well, you must be lying. If, you, if that's your opinion, you're a liar. Okay? There's a problem with you. You're defective. So we're going to find out, do some more investigation, and find out if you were really blind at birth. So they call his parents in. And they interrogate his parents. Is this your son? Yes. Uh, was he blind at birth? Yes. Why can he see now? Well, they don't want to touch that one. You know, it's a politically loaded question. And these people know, you know, Jesus is uh, not popular. Uh, and already, apparently, an edict has been issued that if you side with Jesus, you'll get kicked out of church. Nobody wants to get kicked out of church. It's embarrassing. And so they say, well, he's a, he's a grown man. You ask him. So they go back to, you know, round three. And so for the second time they called in the man who had been blind, and they said, give God the glory, in other words, tell the whole truth, because we know that Jesus is a sinner. And he says, well, I don't know whether he is a sinner, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you, I told you once, Weren't you listening? Okay, this guy was blind, but he's not stupid. And uh, his vision is dawning, and he's beginning to see through these Pharisees. He's beginning to see their hypocrisy, and their double-sidedness, and their falseness. He says, why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples too? So they cursed him and said, you're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Okay, when logic and reason breaks down, which it was, uh, you go to the second great sense that we rely on, and that is outside authority. You go to the Bible, right? When your logic and reasoning is failing, you go to the Bible, and you start quoting Scripture. And that's what they do. They go, we follow Moses. We follow what was written in the law. We have very clear commands and specific commands we're going and relying on the authority of, of Scripture. In the modern age, people have kind of abandoned biblical authority and they go to the authority of science, right? We go to outside authority. Uh, the problem is, as we reflect on this, as you look at other parts of Scripture, and it's not developed here, but we know that Moses, everything he wrote about pointed to who? To Jesus, Right? Uh, Jesus has just been going through these festivals, redefining these festivals and these um, events like Passover, 
by Himself. And He's demonstrating over and over again that He is the ultimate picture of all that those things pointed to. In other words, if you read Moses, if you read the Bible correctly, you must read it in the light of Jesus. You must interpret all of Scripture through the light of Christ. And that goes for the Old Testament. That's an important principle for interpreting and understanding the Old Testament. Uh, You cannot understand and interpret Scripture unless you do it through the revealed, completed work of Christ. Well, they didn't have that light. So their interpretation was faulty and limited. Uh, You know, I love how... And I've had had several people tell me this. It's, It's fun. When you say something and they don't agree with you, and you argue with them and you're beating them, right? then the, the final punch is to say, well, that's just not biblical, right? Which means I'm right because I know what the Bible says and, and you don't, right? Have you, ever been, have you ever got that place in an argument? I love it. I love to get there when, you know, all of a sudden we don't agree and the, the whole problem is I'm not biblical, right? Of course, I think they're not biblical because we interpret Scripture differently. We've come to opposite conclusions because our understanding of Scripture uh, is, is not on the same page. The truth is there is a biblical authority that is absolutely true. But that authority is dependent on an interpretation that is greatly flawed. And it goes back to the same principle. Only people who can see, only people who have spiritual sight, have the capacity to understand that biblical authority. If you are blind, you can't really read it very well. You can't really grasp all that it says. So that's why many of the great, uh, quote, Christian cults in the world are built on Scripture and claim biblical authority. So it's not a good in and of itself, and believe me, I believe in biblical authority, but biblical authority apart from a personal encounter and relationship with Jesus Christ will not bring you to the truth. And it will not give you a true knowledge of the universe and spiritual reality. The Pharisees were extremely biblical. They memorized uh, the stuff. They could quote it. It did not bring them to spiritual understanding. Too many Christians think that because their theology is good and it's logical and it's biblical and they can quote scripture, that they know the truth. Jesus would say to you, if you are blind... You don't know the truth, no matter how great you think your doctrine is. If you are spiritually blind, you are spiritually blind. And the conclusions you come to are faulty and short and empty. Right? Third thing, we, we, so, so there's logic, there's outside authority. Third thing we come down to, if those start to fall apart, uh, bottom line, we rely on gut, in, gut instinct, gut feeling, right? You know, it's one of those deals where don't confuse me with the facts. Don't tell me this stuff. I just know because I know. Right? Well, that's where they get to. They say, we just know Jesus is a sinner. We just, we just know. Okay? Don't, don't argue about this stuff. We just know. How do you know? Well, we just do. Right? And, uh, and they are convinced. And so they cannot see the truth because their gut instinct is flawed and, and skewed and confused. Um... And so they don't want the facts and they don't want information. And interestingly enough, this blind guy says, you know, you, you, you want to be his disciple, 
and, and, and they say, well, we, you know, your curse is on you. We follow Moses. We don't even know this guy. And he says, why, that is very strange that you don't know where this man comes from. Here's this guy who healed my eyes, and yet you don't even know where, you don't know about this guy? We know, okay, here's the blind guy, the guy who's supposed to be born in sin, you know, super sinner, under God's curse, bad karma, the whole bit. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Powerful statement. Here's this guy who's supposed to be blind and clueless, making an incredible declaration. It echoes, if you go back in chapter 8, it echoes exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will know by, uh, by th- those who do my will will know the truth. You'll know the truth and set you, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you will know the truth if you do my will. Here's this guy saying that same thing. If we worship God and do his will, God will listen to those people. And so he puts it together. He says, ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. There's been some great healing miracles and even giving sight in the Old Testament. But never is there recorded someone born blind who could see. His conclusion, if this man were not from God, he could not have done it. See, he sees and he knows. And he sees with eyes so sharp and clear and his vision continues to improve. His vision continues to get sharper and clearer as he starts putting all these pieces together. And he knows because he can see, not just physically but spiritually, that this could only be the work of a good and loving God. There is no other explanation. Well, because they're operating on gut feelings, their only response is to curse this guy. You were born a total sinner, they answered, are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Interestingly, they confirmed two things. First of all, they, they, originally they didn't want to admit that he was born blind. Well, in their final declaration, they confirmed that truth. We know you were born a sinner because you were born blind. Who are you to teach us? Secondly, they confirmed the fact that um, sin his blindness was a result of sin and therefore his sight could not, could not be a cause of sin. Okay, they kind of undermine their whole argument and actually confirm what he's saying. That sin cannot bring about this kind of healing. Only God can. But at this point, you know, in, in an argument when you just get ticked off and like you're just raging and you start saying things that don't make sense, you know, they're there. Okay? And they've, they've lost it. And as this guy becomes more and more enlightened, has more and more insight into spiritual realities, we see these great religious leaders spiraling downward deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness and blindness. An absolutely refusal to admit that Jesus could be the light of the world. And Jesus says, you know, you must work while it's still day because when the, when the nighttime comes, it's over. For these guys, night was coming quickly when they and all hope of seeing would be lost. And that's how it works. When we start rejecting truth, when we start refusing to admit we don't have sight, darkness quickly closes in and our blindness becomes total. 
and irreversible. Well, after that, Jesus finds this guy, and, and he says, says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he went and he found the man. Uh, of course, this guy could never find Jesus because he'd never seen him. Jesus goes and he finds the man. Amazing picture of Jesus' grace. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Uh, seeing really is believing. Or you might be able to say believing is seeing. I'm not sure which comes first. Does seeing come first or believing come first? I don't know. But it's interesting. Jesus comes to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Uh, this title Jesus used of himself to de- declare himself as God, uh, a title this man understood. Uh, and it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say, do you believe in the great propositional doctrines that Moses taught? The man did, but that's not what he asked. He doesn't say, do you believe that I presented a good logical case for my existence? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Do you believe in me? Do you believe in the person that God sent to the world to redeem it? You see, ultimately our, our, our faith is not in information and facts and doctrinal statements. Those are good things. But ultimately, our faith has to be in a person. It has to be in a personal encounter, an experience with a living being named Jesus. So do you believe in me? Well, at this point, you know, a lot of cool things that happened in this guy's life. And, uh, you know, it wasn't hard for him to believe in Jesus the person. Jesus the miracle worker who had brought sight to his, his, his blind eyes. He says, well, sir, who is he? I want to believe in him. And Jesus says to him, and I love this, I love this. Jesus says to him, he doesn't say I, he's been saying I am, he's real big in chapter 7 and the whole I am thing. He could have said I am. He doesn't say that. He says, you have seen him. Those are, those are powerful words to the guy who like 30 minutes ago was blind, totally blind, right? You have seen him. And here Jesus is standing before him and with his physical eyes, he can say, I have seen him. I am seeing him. But more than that, as all these things were unfolding and as the light was coming on in his heart and soul, Jesus is saying, you have seen him. You have been coming to to grips with the light of truth of who I really am, the living God of the universe, the sent one. You have seen him. And he is speaking to you now. And he says, yes, Lord, I believe. And he worships Jesus. I believe. I am convinced that you are the living God, the sent one, and that I have seen, I have encountered you with my own eyes. You know, what I, what I really want to share this morning, what I really want you to go away with from all this, is that ultimately our whole spiritual existence depends on a personal face-to-face encounter with Christ. Okay? Everything that we believe about Him, you know, the dictionary definitions, only can make sense once you've seen Him. Okay? It's a blind person explaining a rainbow. That's the best picture of it. You know, they can explain it and talk about it all day long, but until their eyes are open and they see a rainbow, those dictionary definitions are just empty words. 
once they've seen the rainbow, there's a lot about a rainbow they can understand by reading about, you know, reading encyclopedias and journals about what a rainbow really is. They can have a, a knowledge of that rainbow far beyond what they just see. But it has to start with seeing. Really, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, if you want to have sight, you have got to see me. You've got to come to a personal encounter with me. And then everything you learn and read in Scripture and you understand from doctrine and you understand about all this logic will make sense. But it only has life and meaning and beauty and power and majesty when you have seen me. Uh, The reason this is such a big deal for me personally is that for so many years of my spiritual life, I went to Bible college and seminary and churches where they said it's all about what you know. It's all about how well you can formulate these doctrines. And you know, I, I knew the doctrines and I could talk about them and I could argue them and I had good logic. So I could make people, you know, back into a corner where they had to say, well, you're just not biblical, right? Because I could argue well. But I, I, I realized that none of that has any meaning or power until you, in the depth of your being, through faith, you encounter Christ face to face with your spiritual eyes. I'm not saying I was blind. God had given me spiritual sight. I just wasn't using it. I was still relying on those senses of logic and outside authority and gut feeling, and I was ignoring the most powerful sense of all, of spiritual sight. In other words, I had been given sight, but I had closed my eyes and was living like a blind man. I think that's true for a lot of Christians. Their experience of God is, is, is through those senses that are so worldly-centered. Logic, reason, uh, you know, arguing scripture. And they have neglected and ignored the most powerful spiritual sense of all. The spiritual sense of knowing Christ through personal experience. We meditated last week on Ephesians 3. Jesus says, Paul prays that we would be strengthened in our inner man through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we might have power to experience Christ, to experience his love. Right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Finally, he says, as he talks to this man, he says, I entered the world uh, to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they can see that they are blind. And some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you trying to tell us we're blind? And Jesus says, yes. The short answer. If you were blind, you wouldn't still be in your sin. But you remain in your sin because you can't believe you're blind. And the first step in this whole process is to realize and to admit we are blind. Uh, we are spiritually in darkness. And unless God gives us sight to see Him, uh, we are missing the most important piece of the whole thing for it to make sense. And they just could not admit that. They were too proud and stubborn to admit there could be more than they know. And throughout the Gospel of John, what Jesus has been saying over and over again is there is more to it than you know. And he's saying this to very religious spiritual people. He's not saying this to the pagan uh, Gentiles. He is saying this to Jewish leaders and teachers. He's saying to them, there is so much more than you know. And I believe Jesus would say to each one of us, 
There is so much more to me and to the spiritual realm I represent than you know. If you just start admitting it, if you would just start owning that you know, you're not as smart as you think, there is more than you know, then I could open your eyes and you could see. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are able to give sight, that you are the light of the world, and that you come to shine in the darkness to make visible what is hidden, to reveal what is cloaked and enshrouded in darkness. Father, we ask that you would help us to realize really how blind we are, how deceived we've been that what we know is all there is to know. That uh, every day the world is screaming out that science has it all figured out and that that's all there is. But Lord, there is so much more. And there is so much more that you want to reveal to us about yourself. But it comes not through our physical eyes, but through our spiritual eyes, deep in our soul and our heart and the inner being of our person. Father, we ask that you would open those eyes. And uh, most of all, not just to see information, but to see your face. Lord, to encounter you. uh, To experience your love in a very real and practical way. So that we can know in a way that we can never know just by reading a book. We can know because we've met you face to face. Lord, we ask that you would just help us to encounter you even now. Open our eyes further to see you as we worship you, as we believe in you, in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.